didn't know that like I was a child labor until I came to America and I see all these children uh, you know going to school and being very protected. This is the Green Pill, a podcast about the planet and the surprisingly diverse people working to fix it. I'm your host, Chris Newman, a medical doctor and environmentalist from London. And today's guest is Nazreen Sheikh. It was an interesting experience to interview Nazreen. Um, it's quite confronting, really, because she was actually a child labourer, you know, a genuine child labourer when she was like 11, 12. And she managed to escape and set up her own business and her own NGO. And her story is its shocking and beautiful and um, so alien, really. And at a time when fast, cheap fashion is everywhere, to to hear why it's so cheap, you know, exploitation of undocumented children. It's, yeah, it's it's shocking. And, and I wondered, you know, how many of the things that I've bought over the years were actually made by, by kids. So yeah, it was difficult. Part of me wanted to hug her and, and you know, part of me wanted to say, I'm sorry. Part of me felt guilty. Uh, but the other part of me was just utterly astonished by how strong she is and the strength of character and this kind of beautiful soul underneath it because she doesn't, she's not blaming people, she's, but she's just trying to get the word out there. Uh, and even talking about it now, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's heavy, it's really heavy. But her message is really, really important and I hope this interview does her justice. So here we have Nazreen Sheikh telling us first of all about where she's from and how this impacted her life. I come from very, very small um, rural areas uh, on the border of India and Nepal. Um, the village itself is not documented, so which means um, like if you try to find that village in the map or in the book, you couldn't find it. Like the people in the world don't know about it. So when the village is undocumented, uh, the people who born in that village is also um, are not documented which means um, I did not have my birth certificate. I don't know when did I born. My parents were like, uh, um, they have been uh, traumatized in their own life, like oppression after oppression. So they have even forgot the, uh, the power of giving birth, the power of love. And uh, energetically, they do understand what is love, but uh, through their mind and uh, their, um, according to their um, like awareness, have gone so much uh, um, out of like when you when you're so much traumatized, like you forget, and it's like we don't know what are we doing, and unconsciously we participate in suffering, and we don't even know that we are participating in suffering. It's so, like you're in survival mode almost, yeah, just trying to yeah. survive day by day by day, and you don't quite understand exactly what you're doing to other people. Exactly, and then that perpetuates that much that you know the mom forgets what it feels like to to give a birth to a child and what are the things that she needs to put together to love her, you know. So um, in my village, my mom she was like oppressed so much that she didn't even uh, like even write like when did I born or what time or what year. So no awareness on that. Nobody have any birth certificate or anything. So I don't know how old I am. Like I have. No idea, but I can guess like according to just my look, and you know, and I think that I'm 26, 27, 28, but that's a guess. Um, because these villages are undocumented, um, a lot of things happen in these areas and are not documented. It never makes a police report, it never goes out into the world. And uh, when I was very young, I see a lot of beauty in the village where people used to grow food, people had like, you know, very like we didn't have any electricity so in the nighttime we just used to see all these beautiful stars oh wow you saw the stars that's amazing yeah <laughs> i think i've ever seen them in in this country i know i mean like there is always positive and negative right and we human are here to 
try to find a balance. So what I'm talking at here is in this village, there was a lot of atrocities was happening against women and children. But at the same time, the nature was very powerful that people did not have electricity. So they used to see the star. People did not have um, uh, like a plastics or anything access to the uh, type of uh, things. So they used to uh, cook food with the firewood and clay and uh, throw the clay in the, in the field and it can decompose. So people were used to in harmony. And then slowly something happened that I feel like cooperation took over my village and all of the sudden um, uh, every girl needs to get uh, forced marriage and arranged by the age of 13, 14, 15, and by the age of like 16, 17, you have to get married. And uh, if you don't get married by the age of 20, you consider too old to get married. So nobody will else marry you. So it becomes a priority for every uh, parent to arrange girl as fast seek hand because the younger you are, the better husband you will find. So um, it was happening to my older sister. My older sister, she was 12 and she got arranged into forced marriage. Mm. At the age of 12. Yeah. And um, I see a lot of other atrocities. My aunt being murdered because she was a little bit outspoken. And I knew that I will be next. Like, uh, I didn't know right away, but after some time, it just didn't felt right to me. And um, Did you feel unsafe as a girl and becoming a woman in, in that in that society or in your village? Yeah. I, I did felt very, very unsafe and uh, uh, the unsafe, uh, like the very close to the, my sister, my sister, she was around and she was trying to get her married and my mother was, and my family would say like, no, this is your destiny, this is your life. I did it, my mother did it, now you have to do it. And sometimes I would ask my question to my mom, and say, you know, it will happen to you also. This is how our culture is this is what we know because they didn't know anything out of outside of that box so what they know is that they have created a reality into it and it's fine for the village you know and for me in that time also it was fine but few things my sister and my aunt murdered pinched my heart and it felt like it's not right and um, I decided um, my curiosity started to grow and I was around like nine or ten and uh, um, I had no role model to look up like there's no awareness and I started to just go out in the forest and talk to the nature like I started to just like I felt very unsafe that I felt only safe with nature and what, were you, what, were you, what was going through your mind at, at that age like you mentioned you were curious about how the bigger world was or uh, what uh, kind of things just a curious around um, trying to connect with my higher self at the age. Like mm. I used to pray a lot and just talk to the tree and that gave me a sense of safety. And um, I developed my own song, which is um, whenever I would feel like something traumatized me, I would just repeat that song. And um, that gave me kind of protection energetically. And uh, I started to talk to myself a lot, which I call now today that I was talking more to my husband. And uh, um, so, uh, yeah, I decided to leave my village um, and I came to Kathmandu and most likely uh, if any people from such villages come to the city, either you end up in sex trafficking, human trafficking or some sort of illegal sweatshop. Um, so, um, because... How, how old were you when you left? Sorry. Around nine or ten. And your parents knew? like. My parents knew and my cousin brother was the one that was involved to bring me from uh, from village to the city. So my parents did trusted, uh, trusted him and uh, my cousin brother himself, he was a child labor in a bulb factory. So he made a bulb factory when he was around like 10 or 11 and he had asthma making like working for almost five, six years. So he left the bulb factory and he went to fashion industry so he was working as a short shop labor in Kathmandu and he did not even know 
Also, I didn't know like I was a child labor until I came to America and I see all these children, uh, you know, going to the school and being very protected. And I had my memory. I was like, oh my God, in this nine or 10 year old, I was in this small room in 10 by 10. We were six people working so many hours, making almost 500 t-shirt a week. And I remember mm -hmm. if I did not make 500 pieces in a time it means i would not get paid and um, the order would get cancelled so we had to work 12 to 15 hours a day i was uh, making less than two dollars like terrible terrible condition you know so could, could you did you get the sense that you could leave once you were there um no no i did not have the sense of understanding that this is something against human rights I felt in that time, this is something, this is another oppression, or this is, this is the way of life. I didn't know that there is something better out of it. Did you want to go home, back to your, back to your family, your village? Um, I was in a, in, in, a, in a mist, which is like, I didn't know what to do. Either like I go back to the village and I'm forcing to marriage. I'm here in the sweatshop working many, many hours. Wow, so that was your choice, being so forced into know. marriage or, or going yeah. to work? No choice, you know, so either you accept this oppression or you took uh, this oppression. There's no way to get out of it. Um, so I worked like this for two years. And uh, um, today still I research the data and almost 40.3 million people are living the same life that I lived for that two years. So what happens with the uh, with the massive corporations is like uh, like today like right now um, uh, ninety five percent of American manufacturing and clothing happens overseas. So these big factories goes to the countries like India, Nepal. China, Bangladesh, and they make a deal with like main factories. Main factories have the sub factories, sub factories have the small factories, the small factories have tiny factories. And in these tiny factories, they have a small illegal sweatshop hidden in unmarked buildings. And in these illegal sweatshops, they use basically the people who are undocumented and don't even have a birth certificate or anything because the conditions in those areas are very harsh. So if I lose my hand, or if I lose my uh, something, uh, I will be never, ever able to make a police report because I don't have any um, identity, you know? So Did you see anything like that happen while you were there? Well, it happened to one of my uncle um, who was, uh, like, he worked for many, many hours, like 12, 15 hours a day, every, every single day. And then uh, by the age of 28, he started to lose his eyes. Like, his, he couldn't see because imagine, like, four, focusing on like 12 hours every day like this. So your eyes uh, and having very low nutrition food and very low way of living. So it attacked his eyes. And then once he lost his eyes, um, he became so dependent on the society. And then after at the age of 30, he died. So, um, um, yeah, and many, there's, there's like, I'm researching the data right now, like how many people are undocumented in this world and not recorded, and 35% of total birth all around the world are not documented. Wow. So, so they could end up being exploited. Yeah. So do you, now, obviously, um, th things have happened in your life that have allowed you to go to America, which we'll get to later on, but um, did you have any idea at that when you were in the sweatshop what was happening to the clothes and, and how little we seem to value to a degree what you were making? Yeah, I feel like um, we were uh, so disconnected in that, um, in the sense of understanding, like I'm, I'm in a small tiny place making probably hundreds of t-shirts. I was not even making the whole t-shirt. I was just stitching one single stitch and doing the same thing probably thousands of times. So I didn't even feel like a human. I feel like a robot and, uh, my creativity started to like just become flat, you know? And, uh, um, and I had to be like fast as machine and uh, um, sometime like you know we would start the work from morning uh, 4 a.m. and 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 and 
p.m. when when it would be like 10 or 11 p.m. then that is when I would just break down and still we would have like a list of things that we need to do and if we don't so the, the agent would call like every hours and say like please make sure that before you finish the quota then you will go to the sleep because whatever you have worked the whole week it will be go nowhere so they force you with like this much work like so much work more than you can handle and then they give you very limit time like um, like a week you know in a week finish 500 pieces of uh, these clothes. And if you don't finish this in 500, you will not get paid for the whole week. So it forced us to make a choice, either do the work or, 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 or like, Stunt. yeah, or, or you're out of here. You know, you, there's, there's no way to get out of it. So um, that is when I, I was just energetically nothing I could do nothing like I could not even tell to the agent like hey why you're doing this like I had no awareness like my voice was taken out and how, did you, how did you feel did you feel sad or numb or angry or uh, I felt very angry and I felt uh, um, I started to talk to the t-shirt I had nobody to talk to so again talking to this t-shirt and I would say like whoever is going to wear. So I was sending message to the person who is going to wear. And I was saying like, whoever is going to wear these t-shirts, um, I hope they can feel me. I hope they could see my tears. I hope they can see that I just want to sleep. So I started to talk like that. Like I would make t-shirt and then just talk and talk like that. So um, um, that was again, just I was sending some of my anger into that um, clothing and the things that I was working definitely anger to the to the person who was working but the most importantly I was sending the anger to the t-shirt because that is what I had to do like that became my like uh, burden of my life you know I felt so for like um, it's 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 very deep um, hurt, you know, like um, I'm having even a hard time to find, um, it's like so sad, so sad. And when you are nine year or 10 year old, you just want to go and sleep. And, um, and, you know, the hardest part was that sometimes I could not even breathe. Like um, those 500 t-shirts would literally in the end of the night would become my bed and um and then in the clothes like when it's the first hand is so much filled with chemicals like so much chemicals and uh, we had to put that t-shirt in my face and sleep under that chemical and i felt like i couldn't even breathe and that was the hardest feeling to feel that when you we were alive and you couldn't even breathe you know so, if, 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 we've, if we found an 11-year-old in this country or anywhere in the like, so-called developed world, if you found them in a small shed doing what you were doing, there'd be, out, there'd be absolute outrage. People would be, you know, they'd want to bring back corporal punishment for the guys you know, who let it happen. But we're so disconnected from, from it that people are just oblivious or they, or they have an idea, but they don't want to know where, you know, we don't want to know where our clothes come from. I feel like it's so hidden. And um, uh, what I see is uh, whatever used to happen in, uh, in back in Europe or in the US, it just sifted somewhere else, you know, and it sifted countries like in, in Southeast Asia. And uh, um, it is still happening. And people are still up like, where do you, where, like, I walk into these major department store now, it's with stuff and there's no information who makes it which condition they make it there's no information around the artist or anything so when it's there's no information it's so much focused on the profit and uh, um, and the big CEOs they focus on like how much profit how many quantities are being made you know they do probably care about the environment I don't know but I think like they're so disconnected from the source of those manufacturing so everybody's so driven towards profit that they don't even give uh, ideas around human rights 
you know they don't even think that part because their mind is so busy and so focused on profit and so focused on maximizing the work that they forget the part of where their things are coming from you know and uh, because if they would have been responsibility of course they would have been researched and of course they have been like pay attention on it so it's not even in their awareness like it's a it's it's a circle that's in that circle there's a lot Thousands of many things are happening, but people focus only one thing, which is profit. You know, they don't think of uh, environment. They don't think about human rights. They don't think about, you know, how we can harmonize the world. Like those other things, like the elements of real success, people don't think that. And uh, it's somebody somewhere is going through that pain and going through that suffering and the world is contributing into it unknowingly, you know. And uh, um, that's why I feel like uh, um, those people, like I'm thinking that there's 40.3 million people. But when I was undocumented, I was not even recorded as a child labor. So how would people know the statistics on that, you know? So um, all I say is we need, uh, we need a world where we know where our things come from, who makes our light bulb. You know, my cousin as an eight-year-old, he was making a bulb. How many even people think of that, you know? How many people even think of like where their glass comes from, where their phone comes from, where their clothes come from? You know, it's all are so hidden and human misery is involved in that. It's not that robot made it, it's human made it. So if we live in a disconnected world, we will have some outcome for it, you know? Yeah. Um there's, we, we don't do it so much here, but I know in America they say grace a lot when they, you know, when they have the food and you're supposed to be valuing nature and valuing all the people who brought the food to your plate. But I, I wonder if we should do the same with everything that we buy, you know, like just sit and look at it for a few minutes and say who, what has gone, gone into this from nature and who has made that. And it's probably hundreds and hundreds of people and, and so much materials that we would not have been aware of. Yeah, and like that is, we have so much access to these material human misery that fashion is the second most polluting industry in the world, you know, because what we have been taught all over that you buy and it's so, it's $10, so why would you do the laundry? It's like new fashion, new trend, new new brand, oh, new season, all these things we have been like nonstop brainwashed and like buy more and more and more and then um, people over somewhere else is in the small sweatshop is forced to make more and more and more mm-hmm. and in that middle nature has to go through that suffering that in the end like it's all end up in the in the in the field in the in the nature in the soil and i'm researching the data right now like almost one t-shirt uh, to make a one t-shirt it takes 300 gallons of water which one person can drink for almost you know a year or so so uh, same with like um one one of the synthetic t-shirt that you're wearing or a synthetic backpack that you're wearing, it will take 800 years to decompose. So whatever we are contributing in is a, is a long lasting effect in our environment. And we see that happening. Like Nepal used to have a very beautiful river running throughout the city. And now, like currently now, if I go to, like when I'm in Nepal and I'm like walking through the river, I literally have to cover my face like this like cover it and because it's so so bad smell it's all like filled with like industrial waste human waste all these um those plastics and everything is filled in and the river is dead and the children who are taking a new birth in this area they don't even know what river looks like so we are creating like so much misery for not only for others, but also for ourselves, it will come back to us, you know, 10 times more harder because nature is always stronger than us. And, yeah. So, yeah. And Nepal is one of the most, is, is a really at risk country as well from climate change with, with the Himalayan glacier melt and um, flooding and, and, and droughts and, um, and all those kind of things in the next, we don't know how many decades, but not many. 
Yeah, it's like um, we have, uh, we already, I have seen like in this 10 years, we used to have a lot of rain. And now, whenever the rain comes, it's like, boom, and then, uh, and then floods happen, you know, and it so there's um, a lot of the change, like so much dramatically change are happening. And of course it's going to change because we are human are not operating on the level of our respect to each other. We are not respecting the tree. We are not respecting the mountain. We are not respecting our ancestors. So, you know, they are going to get mad and uh, they are mad. And so, but the fact I feel is we have been so much traumatized in those areas that people just don't know the example of change because if they would know they will participate in change. Right now, I feel like more and more people are still participating in misery. There are still so many sweatshops exist. There are still companies are making billions and billions of dollars out of human misery, you know, and we need to stop that. And uh, um, I just feel like um, I hope this message just reached to the people and builds uh builds an environment where we invest, we use a technology in a way that we bring the identity of the people who mix things, you know, and give them just a fair wage. So when you give them fair ways, they have a, like a, some time to think on themselves, who they truly are. And when they develop that, who they truly are, they always develop to be in service to to their children, to the people, to the community. And when they don't get paid, they are like in a misery. So in a misery, you always bring more misery. You know, you can't bring change. So it's very, very important for the people to get fair, fair living, fair wages, so they can send their children to the school, so they can do something different, you know? Like my, my father, he worked um, as a in a in a car industry and he did building so uh, in the car building he his working condition was so terrible that he did not even had a shade in his head so like um it would be like 48 degree 45 39 degrees and he worked in the open sky so um and did building and no no safety zone so he got schizophrenia when i was not even born so uh so the system took my father you know and uh, he's still alive but his his mind is gone and uh, he couldn't operate anymore and uh, he couldn't think more anymore wisely and all he could like he became silent so um it happened to me and uh, not everybody survived like all of my family members for generation after generation have been so much in um in in, in slavery like it's such a hard slavery that it takes the life at the age of 35 40 die like normal age in my village is 50 you know is yeah, yeah. It sounds like you, obviously you and all the other undocumented people have suffered hugely. I mean, and your and your family and all their generations before. But you, there's obviously you're here now and you, you have a voice, and that's incredible. But I'd love to understand a bit more as to ha what happened from from when you were in the sweatshop. How did you get out of that of that situation? So, um, you know how brand comes and brand changes and uh, like new line came and then next year new line. So our line runs for like two years. And then after that, uh, the line changes. And when the line changes, it's very easy for these big factories to set up different uh, sweatshop instead of operating the same one. And then what people had to do is move from one place to another. So in my case, um, actually the agent made us work for two months and he just disappeared with all the money and everything and just run away. And we're like, we were nowhere and we had only two choices. I had two choices again in my life, either be in the city and 
most likely I will end up into sex trafficking. And this is how still today, almost oh 10 women in Nepal end up in the sex trafficking. And, or you go back to the village and be forced into marriage. And um, so I chose that time that I will go back to my village because I didn't want it to be in the sex trafficking or like get human abducted or anything. So um, while I was getting ready for uh, going to the village, you know, sometimes you have the instinct that okay you are living the city and let's 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 explore last time so i started to see he started to come out the street and watch uh, all the people doing their things and one of the most like like touch my heart is seeing all these people and students going to the school and I was only 12 so I had a huge desire that I wish I could go to the school I wish I could have a um, uniform or shoes or books or pen to write but my reality was totally different so um, uh, until I was in Kathmandu it became my daily ritual to just come out to the street and watch students going to the school and one day I was watching all these students going to the school and um uh, one random dog come and sniff something like this. <laughs> like really, like come to me. Probably I was dirty and I don't know. And behind this dog is a, is a man and I get freaked out with this dog and he tells me, come here, don't be scared. He's like my son. And uh, when he told me, come here, don't be scared, in Nepali, I just completely felt like um, like a like a source of love that nobody had ever told me come here. Like and someone's finally seen you. Yeah, and I just immediately told him like, "Uncle, if you can teach me." And his name was uh, Nizamuddin, Leslie John. You know, so many he had many different names and uh, for the last 10 years he had been teaching me he taught me everything like math science physics spirituality everything I supposed to know as a human being and uh, <clears throat> once I had that education um, I come to understand that oh my god I have to do something about it so I took my loan and I started a fair trade organization in the same city and same area where I was a farmer child labor so, so, so this this person that you met, um, how did you get this education, and um, did you stay in Kathmandu? So, or that was in the village. No, in Kathmandu, he helped. He he was living in Kathmandu, so he sponsored me, kind of like he he got me a book, he got me a, a pen, he got me like all the things that I needed to study. But at the same time, I took a loan and um, rented a small space and had my machine and whatever the skill I have learned, I started to make my own things and slowly find my way. Wow. So you use the skills that you'd learned with the kind of like micro finance loan to yes. start up your own business. Yes. How old were you then when you started? Um, I think I was around uh, 13, 14. Wow. It's not that I feel like all, every time I tell people, like it's not the age that makes you like, it's the experience, you know, I felt like yeah. I lived the experience like for like a really intense experience in a very small age. And that experience makes you more wise and more active. And yeah. uh, it wasn't easy. It took a lot of struggle to go through it. But um, I, that was my survival. Like sure. for some people, it's like, wow, you did that. But I feel like for me, it was just a survival. I just needed to do that. But we relate it to ourselves. Like I think about what was I doing when I was 13? You know, on a bike going around, just, you know, collecting tadpoles and reading books about dinosaurs and all those little things, absolutely oblivious to the people like you who've been working in a sweatshop for three, four years. Yeah, uh, it was really, really, really it's, um, hard. And uh, I feel like sometime uh, in every darkness, there is a light. And uh, if we look uh, deeply, um, we can find the solutions and um, we, can, uh, we can be better than words, you know, because we do have that power. We have enormous amount of power. We just don't know how to use it. And that's where I tell people, like, stop competing, like, stop uh, um, uh, you know getting brainwashed like do what you truly are and if you believe in that who you truly are that's most unique thing that you can ever do because I, Chris nobody can take your place ever 
ever. You are the only one person that is in this universe can co-create whatever you want. And at the same time, I feel like my mind can nobody ever take it. So why would I give my power to the competition, to the, to the brainwashing? Why can't I co-create? And I feel like I was able to do that because I had a very less brainwashing. Like uh, I was victim of all these things, but I was not brainwashed that you, you should do this or you should do this myself always to like in order to go through this problem i need to do this you know and nobody was else was there to tell me what to do or what to not do i just needed to do what i needed to do in order to survive and have that compassionate heart to be in service to the world and to the nature and i feel like that's very important you know um yeah absolutely amazing and i, and I know that you have a right your incredibly in um, and have been incredibly independent for uh, way longer than I have uh, and I'm quite a bit older than you um, but I know that you're also helping to empower women um, and you started really a lot uh, very young trying to empower women who've been through something like you have could you tell us a little bit about um, what happened next yeah, um, so I started um, uh, Local Women's Handicraft in 2008, and uh, it's basically the idea is to lift the women who have been marginalized and exploited to give them opportunities and skills and sense of dignity um, and uh, uh, to spread also this model um, that I call empowerment center across the world, you know. and. Uh, um, basically all these women who have been like into a sex trafficking or any sort of like hard uh, like they have nowhere to go and they don't know what to do so uh, in our local women's handicraft we have um, uh, a model which is any women who are feeling that she's not enough we bring them in our center and we first listen to them who they what happened to them and who they are and then once we listen to them we understand what she who she is and what she wants to do and then after that we have uh, <clears throat> once we listen to them we show them uh, we have a seven different type of department that she can uh, learn something to heal her wound or heal her trauma and uh, and do something about it so once choose which department she wants to be <clears throat> and then after her choice she will get training for almost two years to four years and then uh, um, when the training goes for four years or two years, like it becomes like um, it's a medicine that you take, you know, you have to work energetically, mentally, spiritually to come to the center and heal your wound and find your gem that who you truly are and do something about it. So in this training uh, for four years, once they're trained, they have two options. Either they can become um, a teacher and mentor in our organization and teach other women who have been in the same condition or she can apply for microfinance loan and open her own businesses so like this um, we have trained more than hundreds of women and I had seen like some of the women they would come and they were their head and their eyes and their everything is so down and then slowly like by the end of the training I just see them lifting up and being having a voice and having a inspiration and having like a skills and knowledge to do something about it, it just feels uh, very, very powerful. And I think this model I was able to develop because I lived that life. Like I lived that how it feels to be to be uh, to be enslaved and to be in a misery and what do exactly you need in that time so that experience brought me to help the people who were in the same condition as I and I feel completely connected to them like whenever I see them I feel like that's me that's part of me so I'm basically thinking that I'm helping everybody but you know I always tell people like when you help others you are helping yourself because every day all these women comes and when they get healed, my wound of the suffering that I experienced as a child is healing to me, you know.
Mm-hmm. And um, so you can always take your trauma and you can turn into a power, you know. It's all about choice. So many of us, we take trauma and we build more trauma. We build because we get so used to it. But for some people, they can turn that sadness and do something positive about it, you know. So it's all about choice. It's all about how you make a daily choice in every single way even you speak something it affects other people you know so we need to be very aware of that and i feel like many of us we 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 don't know that and uh, and uh, um, we perpetuate into either good or bad but eventually after all it's about choice so that's that's what i'm doing with the local women's handicraft and uh, um i came to america in 2015 put mean completely in shock felt like coming out of cave felt like oh my god wow, I yeah to that was a shock it was so shocking i mean it made whole sense it made whole sense of how disconnected we are in this planet like people are just don't you know like um i i went to this department store and i see people like just buying this thinking that oh okay this is just a product of 25 dollar like sort of look the color and the size and you know check out and they have no idea like oh my god who made it where it come from which condition it's made how much chemical is in there they they have never told that you know so the so they don't even think about that i feel like the companies needs to come together and need to accept that we are in our planet 40.3 million people are operating into the pain and suffering the companies needs to let them know that there's more than 200 million child labor they're operating this they need to share the truth you know the reality of the world and i feel like once we share the reality and the truth of the world we all will be more aware because i don't think if people would knew that those 10 dollar t-shirts are made out from these small uh, people from the villages and undocumented in a sweatshop in a misery nobody would have bought that you know so um and i also think that the top ceos probably don't know what is happening in the all the way to the bottom line so maybe they are also disconnected you know that is why i feel like uh, my message is very very important to let them know like what happens in the very bottom you know very very bottom so uh, the the world leaders can understand and uh, uh, bring that transparency around supply chain and bring the voices and the stories of the people who are involved so Absolutely. Um, there's definitely um, a huge, you know, once you know something, it's very hard to go back. Once you've seen something in a certain way, you, you can't see it any other way anymore. Um, I, I do, um, w- one of the arguments people make against closing down sweatshops um, is that it would, it, if there hadn't have been a sweatshop for you to go to, there wouldn't have been a, not, a way out of, even though it was a horrible life, it was a, a life in a way that you chose. Um, and I mean, obviously the, perhaps closing them down isn't the best thing, but people can buy something, but also make a donation to a charity like yours. Um, yeah. And then you get the kind of, in a way, the best of both worlds, you give people a choice, but you also support an alternative and, yeah. and the empowerment of women. Yeah, I feel like um, there's a lot of us that want to give the charity and I feel like it's very important to to whom you're giving, you know, because um, um, I, what I feel like a lot of us, a lot of the charity, they ended up on like tracking the data and information, which is important, you know. But at the same time, I feel like action needed. You know, we don't even have a time in our planet because of the ecosystem, because the way that we are operating, the way that we are growing so fast, our population and everything. We need to take action, you know, and that is what I believe in. And so in uh, when I came to America, I opened an empowerment collective. That is our nonprofit name. Um, uh, 
we named before lockwarm.org, but I'm changing into Empowerment Collective. So the whole ideas around Empowerment Collective is let's take action now. So if anybody even donates $5, it works like a $10 because of the way that we operate. And we operate in a way that actually not only just tell and give people help, but build a system, build a platform so they can empower themselves. You can never help people if they don't want to receive a help. So in those areas, we need to build a system that, hey, you know, if you really want to contribute into a, make a better world, let's break the habit, let's break the belief system of carrying plastic bag everywhere you go, you know? So let's, let's, let's use your time instead of just going and talking about things which does not make sense into a creativity, into a power. And this is whole thing is around our Empower Women's Empowerment Center, where we bring people, we listen to them, educate them, we give them skills because skills is so, so important. And then we make them aware that there is a bigger world and we all are connected. And what you do as an individual, it makes so much difference all around the world. So giving that self-values and self-worth to any individual from very bottom, it just, you see all of the sudden sees operating in the negative part and now sees in positive side, you know, and it changes the whole ripple effect, not only in her life, but her children's life, her family life, and eventually to the community life. And it's, it has been such a powerful force, uh, um, uh, the work that we have been doing. And right now, we are opening our second women's empowerment center in very small village, which is also not documented. And uh, what happened is this village gets every two years flooding. And uh, um, most of the men have left the village and they live in the city and women and children are there. And uh, none of the NGOs even goes there because when you go there, there will be a, like, um, you will have malaria, a lot of mosquitoes and all sort of things. So a lot of the NGOs don't go there. Because I come from such areas and I have experienced that, I have decided to go there. And uh, we, what we have come to understand is uh, in that village, every children and every woman are drinking yellow water. It's uh, bacterial water. And... Uh, um, yeah, and they're having um, a lot of problems with their tooth, with their stomach, with their everything. So um, I'm trying to fundraise to set up a clean water uh, for this village and bring the clean water because that's water and air is the, the first human rights. I mean, every single human being deserves to have a clean water, you know? And uh, But now we have created a wall that... You know, it's it's for so many people they don't have a clean water. In this village, I specifically have like people are dying, so um, I'm trying to build this clean drinking water. So if anybody wants to donate, if, you, if anybody wants to support, there is a website people can go and read all the um, business plan lwhnepal.com and then go to donate button and you will see uh, the whole business plan and uh, uh, what are we doing there is a video that we have developed so it gives them ideas how the village looks like um, and uh, <clears throat> we are very connected to whoever people donates we send them right away feedback like there's no like um, just giving them the information but we try to bring them to this village so we can hear each other because my teacher, I always ask him, why did you help me? And he said that you have no idea what you give me, you know? So when you help others and um, right. you receive a lot also. So. And does, where does he live now, your, your teacher, the, the chat with the dog? Um, yeah, he is um, he's in his late 70s now and um, he have, he have a little bit of Parkinson's and... Uh, um, so um, I brought him to when when I did the TED talk. So that okay. was my first. Uh, but he lives in nursing home, and uh, um, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, in terms of the charity, like I can't think of many better charities to um, for so many reasons. Um, um, there's the obviously fast fashion. There's the suffering that goes into it. 
Then there's the kind of the climate change issue, trying to make it a more um, fairer for people, fairer for the environment. Then there's empowering women, which we know is one of the best ways to to stop um, to a rein the men in who sometimes get a bit power hungry, and also um, keep control of the population. And the fact that the person who's running it as someone who's understands to her core what she's doing it for i think yeah so many reasons so it's a, i think it's a fantastic enterprise yeah um totally i feel like female is um, the one that will bring harmony and um in my village <clears throat> i don't have to go so far but my village was 100 male dominated society so because it was 100 male dominated society the people, the the leaders, they forgot the power of harmony and they forgot the feelings, they forgot the connections, you know, and they made the decision from the mind, control and all those things. And the female were not oppressed for many, many, many years, not just talk, you know. So um, I think when female comes, she will bring feelings it will bring the hearts it will bring uh, an awareness and connection and that is what our world is missing right now so empowering a woman means like we are bringing more love more connection and more prosperity to the world and we all are you know as much male is important at the same time female is important important you know because what one another we can't we can't move forward mm -hmm. so the female part right now in 2019 we are so behind everything so it's a very important for our um male uh, friends and uh, families to come together to help the women and you know, it's not that men are bad. We, you guys, also need our help. You know, <laughs> that is so our, true. Yeah, like it's not <laughs> like we are just in that era, and all of a lot of the good men are there. Like my teacher, he was the best man that he came and helped me, and he was a man. You know? So there are a lot of good men, and there are some men who control the things. They just need more love and more understanding that it's okay to give power back. It's okay to share things because, you know, our male part does not teach us, but we can learn that through female. So, um, I feel like um, that would be really powerful. If women bring something to the power, harmony will come. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely absolutely so you heard it here so remind me the website name again um so lockwom.org l-o-c-w-o-m.org soon it's going to be into an empowerment collective.org and then uh, if anybody wants to um check uh, local women's handicraft that is where they will see a recycled products and hemp products like the products which is very harmony to the nature like we grow our own hemp and we harvest and we weave and we make these um here <laughs> oh show me oh wow that's made in that's made by the workers in nepal yeah this is made by the women and actually this is her photos she made it wow her story that's what that's what fashion should be like Yes, because then people will be like, okay, this is the person made it and they can know her stories and then people can feel connected to it. Right now, we're just like, oh, it's just a product and we don't care so much, you know. But once you know that it's a person behind it, you have different care. Thanks for listening today. If you want to hear more about today's guests, check out the show notes at thegreenpill.org and tune in next time for Baba Brinkman. This Canadian science rapper is a regular feature of New York's Broadway. The Green Pill is edited by Kazra Ferrugia, produced by James Bishop and is part of the One Fine Play Podcast Network. You can find me on Dr. Chris Newman on Twitter and Instagram. Until next time, see ya.